Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you chiching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, it's Anarchy here. Um, thank you for listening to the podcast, or if you're just about to listen to the podcast. Um, I really want to dedicate this specific episode um, to Dr. Stephen Somerville, who's my dad, who unfortunately died on March the 27th. Um, and so I dedicate this podcast to him because he uh, was always a big supporter of the hotbed and a big supporter of everything to do with uh, podcasting and feminism and socialism. So uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. And uh, this one's for you, Dad. Thanks. Welcome to The Hotbed. This is the podcast brought to you by The Hotbed Collective. We are a merry band of women hell-bent on making the world a better place, one orgasm at a time. I'm Lisa Williams and this is... Anarchy Somerville. I've got my fierce glasses on today, which my dad doesn't like whenever I put them on. Uh, I couldn't figure out why he didn't like them and then I saw a photo of my nan, his mum... And she used to wear glasses that were very similar. So I think it's, it's bringing him back some memories of, a, of his own mother, which is maybe not helpful from his daughter. It's a bit weird. <laughs> a bit weird, yeah. Now, um, let's talk about sex and let's talk about socialism. Oh, boring. <laughs> now, well, let's explain to listeners. <laughs> Anarchy was raised in a very political household. Is that right? And therefore, anything to do with politics... Whether it's with a large P or a small P, depends how big your P is. She's just not interested, are you? Um, no, I mean, I, I'm not. I wouldn't say I do my little bit, but um, I think around our family table, if you had any complaints, you were swiftly told that children in Nicaragua were doing off a lot worse off than you were. Um, and we spent quite a lot of time at Greenham Common and at various sort of women's marches and anti-Nazi marches and... Um, I just wanted to have a sort of traditional sort of gingham aproned mother who didn't keep wearing nose rings and getting on mopeds and talking about anti-fascism and stuff. So she was very cool. They were they were very cool parents. But yeah, it's made me it's made me a little bit resistant to talking about politics too much. Do they feel disappointed in you? Are you like the Maggie Thatcher of the family? Yeah, I mean, they're really disappointed because obviously my dad's a Marxist and um I've set up most of my life selling products to people, making them want to consume more stuff um, and also contributed vast amounts to climate change through buying lots of clothing that was unnecessary, which I'm now working on. Um, 
So I think, yeah, I think they were disappointed. My dad was like a big anti-apartheid activist. So, uh, oh, really? Yeah. So he was actually... Cool. Well, it was cool. He was he was actually, for a period of time, he was in prison for that as well. So, But I think that was part of my problem was that my parents were so top trumps on the political side of things that I thought there was, unless I was actually going to position myself as the next leader of a big political party, I could never out, outdo them. So I just went the other way and uh, spent my youth sort of drinking lots of cider and buying clothes. That's rebellion done out Anarchy Somerville style. <laughs> the topic of this podcast is sex under socialism because I spotted, so you and I did our lovely podcast with Vintage Books at the um, women's bookshop. It's called, can you remember the name of it? Um, we'll have to put it, we'll put it up Cheshire as a resource. Street. It's something, it's a very good bookshop, but it was quite a long it's time a great- ago women's bookshop in uh, Brick Lane um, and I spotted a book called Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence and obviously I had to pick it up and read it and it was so interesting and Kristen R. Godsey, the author of it, who's an academic I'm interviewing for this episode but it, essentially her argument is, is that under capitalism there's a value based on women and it is a economic one where basically we are bought and sold, effectively um, sold to the highest bidder, uh, i.e. who we partnered with and how valuable we are denotes who we marry um, or who we have children with and how valuable they are on the market. And that's one argument, first of all. Um, And she says that that kind of leads to relationships that aren't based on mutual attraction, love and good sex. They're based on essentially you will give me a better life. Um, and number two is that she says that under under sort of some socialist principles, women generally do have a better life because there's affordable childcare or free childcare, there's healthcare, and she talks about these, you know, state laundries and state cafeterias, for example, um, which allow women to work a bit harder. Now, she knows that socialism comes with its problems, and we talk about that as well. But I think what's really interesting about that kind of theory is to sort of apply it to our normal lives and to think, you know, are our relationships fair? Um, are we sharing the load of the household and what can the state do to help us? And obviously we've got a massive advantage with the NHS, which is a huge advantage because I just cannot imagine living in a country without the NHS. I just think it would be horrendous. And I think we're all just so grateful for it. But then I sort of think, well, where, what about other things? Like, do you think a sort of, can you imagine your laundry being done for free, for example, or on the state? Would you like your taxes? Would you pay more tax to if that meant that you didn't have to do your own laundry? Well, you know, it's funny because I think if you actually said that every household would have its own cleaner, like I would definitely pay more tax because I think that's a big thing is and we've talked about it before, kind of a barrier in terms of just getting stuff done is the house, the, the sort of sharing the household chores. And for me, my biggest bugbear is and I'm sort of because we're at home recording, we're both at our respective homes. I'm sort of thinking dust dust is everywhere at the moment in the house um, and it seems to be sort of breeding everywhere so I really think if I could have a cleaner that sounds really sort of privileged I know but that would be a massive a massive kind of liberation for me and I think it would probably improve my relationship on every level but also I think it would just help me because at the moment I'm in a desperate strait in terms of housework. I want to share a letter actually and I'm going to put it online uh, in time for this episode but we had a really interesting letter to Dr Karen Gurney from one of our listeners and it was a guy and he was basically saying 
my partner never wants to have sex with me. I've done everything. I've tried. I've, um, you know, tidied up. I've done the washing. I've looked after the baby. And even though I've done all this and told her about it, she still doesn't want to have sex with me. And I thought it was a really interesting letter. It's more nuanced than that. And Karen has an amazing answer, which we'll publish. But I do sort of think, first of all, he's sort of half right, you know, in the way that we say like good sex starts with putting out the recycling. If you feel like you are doing all of the work around the house, you will find it very difficult to suddenly turn around and be like, hi, sexy. Um, But at the same time, it's not as transactional as that. It's not like, okay, here's my list of here's my to do list. Everything's ticked off. The last bit on it is, you know, give me a blowjob. It doesn't work like that either, does it? So it's sort of a subtle difference or not so subtle. Yeah, I think it's I think it's strange. I think it's kind of it's increasingly though I think we're all feeling so overwhelmed by sort of stuff to do and I think partly for me actually it's probably less about the domestic chores and more about the kind of mental admin I agree and uh Kristen has a lot to say about that so I think you will all love this interview here she is this is a sponsored post this is a sponsored sponsored post it's anarchy here I'm just calling you up because um, I've got my period. Um, I'm thinking I might try one of those new moon cups. Oh, moon cup, you say? Well, that happens to be my favourite subject. How did you know? I just guessed. You're that kind of gal. I'll take it. I actually did wonder what it would take for me to convince you to try moon cup. I've sort of had my eye on bringing you to my side, the dark side of the moon. Oh, I know, I know. And you're always keeping me up to date with all the latest things in sanitary care as well, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) It's not a joke. This is true. Um, So I've been using my moon cup for a long, long while. It's the only one that's made in the UK. It launched in 2002 and I started using one. I think I was, you know what? I think I must have been one of the original users because I was at uni at that time and I saw it advertised on the back of a toilet door with a sticker. It was kind of guerrilla marketing. And I was like, what's this moon cup thing? And I tried it. And I've got through about three of them since then. So I've kind of got rid of, of, you know, a couple. I lost one and the other one I just thought was looking a little bit sad and got rid of it. When you say that you lost it, you didn't lose it inside yourself then? No, no, there's no way. The only way is down from a vagina. There's no way all the way up. Um, Were you worried? Yes, I was worried. I was worried. That was one of my barriers as to why I haven't tried it. Why else haven't you tried it, mate? Um, Well, I'm going to go back to my normal voice now because my uh, my accent wasn't working there. Um, I think one of the things I was worried about was kind of just how it feels and the size of it. Um, I suppose post-baby, still only a year and a bit in, um, I've been probably a bit more wedded to using towels just because they feel a bit more comfy. There's two different sizes, so... You just have a look at the the table and they've got a sort of slightly bigger one and a slightly smaller one, depending on whether you've had a baby and how old you are. They've got an advice line that you can call up and really have a little chat with them about any issues that you have. I know a lot of people have questions about whether to use it with, you know, a coil or anything. And I'm not best placed to answer that question, but they have an advice line that with medical professionals. So if you are worried, you can give them a ring. Oh, well, thank you, Lisa. Thank you for all your advice on the Moon Cup. Have I have I won you over? Well, you know what? I think I might give it a whirl. What have I got to lose, really? Um, and I guess there's also the whole area of wastage as well. And uh, I'm feeling a bit guilty about my carbon footprint and all that stuff. So uh, that's another reason to try it. It's true. And if you go to the Moon Cup website, website they've got this amazing ticker it's like a real-time ticker 
that tells you how many tampons and towels have been diverted from the waste stream. So every time they sell a moon cup, they kind of work out this is how many tampons and towels that we are saving. So look at it. You'll find it very motivating. Right. While you're there, mm. listeners, if you want to buy a moon cup, you can use the code hotbed and get 10% off, which makes it around or less than 20 quid. Mm. Can you give me that a little address again, that information again, please? It's mooncup.co.uk. All right. I'm off to go and have a toasted cheese sandwich now. See you later. End of the sponsored post. Hello, Kristen. Hello. How are you? <laughs> I'm really well. Thank you. We're talking from England to, over to America. Whereabouts are you based? I'm in just outside of Philadelphia. Hello, Philadelphia. We did a podcast recording in a feminist bookshop in Brick Lane in East London. And when I was in there, it was all books written by um, women and trans women and non-binary people. And I spotted your book, which was really striking, um, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and other arguments for economic independence. And um, I thought, okay, well, if anything's promising me better sex, I'm going to read about it. (laughs) (laughs) I had a good read. And I just thought it was so interesting because um, I haven't studied much history. um, I haven't really even studied much politics. But I thought it really fit in quite well with a lot of stuff that we talk about on the hotbed. That's why we called it the hotbed, because we started off talking about orgasms and the the orgasm, (laughs) the orgasm gap between men and women specifically. And we were trying to do our bit to try and help it. And then we worked out that actually it's not really about technique. There's so much more that goes into having a good sex life. And your book, I thought, really... um, broke down a lot of these factors um so is that sort of I mean we 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 didn't really come to any conclusions about that but we did sort of we have talked about finding the right partner um this sort of economic problem sometimes if someone's earning more than the other one if someone's doing more housework than the other person um we've never really pinned this down to socialism but you have so why is that well, how did you come to that well, conclusion? Well, yeah, that's a great question. And I think the, re- I mean, the, the short answer is because, you know, people writing about socialist theory in the early 18th century actually pinned it down to, you know, created a link between sex and socialism. They actually really talked about sex. And this was in an era of incredible Victorian prudishness. And so it's really surprising if you go back and you read some of these old socialist theoretical texts that... They're talking about liberating women's sexuality. They're talking about the fact that, you know, women are in these dependent relationships with men and that it sort of distorts their sexuality in a particular way because they look at themselves as commodities to be bought and sold on a market with prices determined by supply and demand. And they had this radical idea that if people, you know, lived in more collective societies where, you know, there were more profits being distributed equitably among the working population, that women would not only be freer in terms of having the ability to make more free choices about their own lives, but that the ability to make those free choices would extend to the ability to choose partners. And of course, at this time, they're primarily speaking about heterosexual partners on the basis of love and mutual affection and attraction rather than on whether or not your partner can pay the rent. Um, And yeah, and I think that that strain of kind of early sex radicalism, what was once called like kind of free love socialism, 
it persisted throughout the socialist era and, you know, in the 20th century, first in Russia in the 1920s and the Soviet Union in the 1920s, and then later after the Second World War in countries like Czechoslovakia or the Eastern uh, Eastern Germany or even to a certain extent Catholic Poland, these were pretty remarkably sex-positive cultures. And you can actually trace some of that sex positivity back to these socialist theories. So, so it's, 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 there are, there are good, compelling theoretical and uh, economic reasons for why this is the case. But I, you know, I don't want to at all say that this is like, I'm the first person to have noticed this. I think this is really, I'm basically kind of highlighting the fact that this has been around in our kind of, you know, collective consciousness really since, you know, the first decades after the French Revolution. And, you know, I laughed a little bit when you said that, you know, you've been talking about like the orgasm gap, right? So um, if you look at the most popular socialist sex manual, which was published first in 1969 in East Germany by a guy called um, Siegfried Schnabel, uh, the opening pages of this sex manual literally in 1969 are talking about the orgasm gap. Oh. Um, and this book is was so popular that it, it, in fact, I think other than a book about gardening, it was the second most popular book, most, you know, best-selling book in all time in Eastern Germany. It went into like 18 editions in Eastern Germany alone between 1970 and 1990. That's almost one edition a year because it was so popular. And it was translated into all these languages and it, you know, ends up in Cuba and in Brazil. It was in Russia and later in Romania, in addition to Bulgarian, which is where I first found it. It's called The Man and Woman Intimately. <laughs> and what is so funny about this book, I mean, again, if I, I could send you po- photos from the illustrations, is that they give anatomically correct diagrams of, you know, where the clitoris is. And there are these very explicit, no-nonsense instructions for how men can facilitate female orgasmic response. So this is like the government of authoritarian states in Eastern Europe giving specific advice to men on how to properly pleasure their women. Now, in the United States where we have like crappy sex education um, that barely covers things like birth control, the idea that you have governments giving direct advice on pleasure and female pleasure, it's almost unthinkable. And yet this was happening across um, the Eastern Bloc, not in all countries, like Romania was not a great place for sex education, nor was Albania. Um, And the Soviet Union was kind of behind, but certainly in places like Czechoslovakia and Eastern Germany and Poland, there was really excellent sex education that focused very specifically on reducing the orgasm gap, which I think is really, a lot of people don't realize that. No, I mean, we had a book out about it last year and we've got the paper book out this year and it feels fresh and exciting and people have been messaging us to say thank you and I didn't realize this and it's just um you know it's amusing to think that it has been out there and it could have been out there but it's not and why do you think that is why do you think that these 
socialist governments thought it appropriate to push this kind of message out, whereas, you know, we live in a kind of free, you know, Western society, and yet books like ours actually don't get a huge amount of coverage and they're not often in the front of the shop. You have to order it, you have to ask for it. Right, right. Well, okay. I mean, so, you know, there's obviously a cynical reason, which is that um, some of these socialist countries basically were pretty bleak places to live. There's not a lot of shopping opportunities and there wasn't much on television and there wasn't much to do. And so sex was free and cheap and, uh, or, you know, or cheap or, um, and it was non-political. And so it was a way for these states to kind of distract people um, and say, look, you guys just, you know, you may not have the latest jeans or the fanciest perfumes, but you guys are going to have really good sex. Um and I think, so that's the cynical interpretation, <laughs> um, is that it was a way to kind of uh, pacify the population. Because if everybody's having a good time in bed and having multiple orgasms, then who's going to go out on the street and protest, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but the more positive um, interpretation is that, you know, I actually think, and this is why it's important to go back to the theory, which is that these theories predated the 20th century communist countries in Eastern Europe. And so, as I said, people in, you know, starting with Bebel's book, Woman and Socialism in 1879, they were really talking about women's sexuality and how socialism would make our sex lives better. And so I think that you know, the, the socialists made a lot of terrible mistakes and the planned economy was a disaster and the secret police were awful, but their attention to things like sex education and their attention to being open and honest with their populations. Now, it helps, right, that they were largely a-religious, right? So um, kind of official state atheism really helped kind of reduce uh, religious discomfort around topics of sexuality. So that's also an important factor. And it also helps that, you know, women were largely mobilized in the labor force. So women were working and they were economically independent. And I think, you know, one of the, as I said, side effects of women's economic independence is that if a woman is not afraid to lose um, her partner because then she won't be able to pay her rent or put food on the table. Or in the United States where we don't have something like the NHS, um, you might lose your health insurance, right? If, you're, if your partner leaves you, if your husband leaves you. Um, you actually, you know, you choose your partner based on whether or not he's a nice guy, whether or not he's good and bad. If you're having painful, awful sex... Um, and you can walk out of that relationship without any economic repercussions. Of course, you're going to walk out of that relationship, right? So women get trapped um, in these economic uh, in these economic relationships, and that's why, you know, I think that our economic system really limits our ability to in fully enjoy our sexuality, inhabit our bodies as we would want to, because unfortunately, you know, we still live in a world where, you know, things are commodified, including human affection and attention. And I don't think that's going to change. Uh, I mean, I completely admire what you guys are doing. And I think that the book is a fantastic project and the podcast is wonderful. Like talking openly about sexuality and the orgasm gap 
and even technique and sex toys to a certain extent is is really um, useful. But it's not enough unless you put that within the wider social, political, and economic context. And that means talking about things like capitalism. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because we sort of say, oh, good sex starts with putting out the recycling. And quite often we have people telling us, you know, that they do love their partners, that they want to be with them, but they're just so pissed off at how much extra work they have to do around the house. And, you know, we talk about the mental load quite a lot, which is, you know, you mentioned this in your book as well about your friend who is the housewife. And even though, oh, she, yeah. even though she's doing all of the work around the house, her husband still really limits how much money she's allowed. And she feels like she has to have sex with him to get money. Um, you know, and I think, you know, certain level, I don't know if our, our listeners will feel that it's as extreme as that for them but they do feel that the burden of of working of parenting because a lot of our listeners do have children perhaps caring for elderly relatives and just living life and you know trying to be a a good neighbor and trying to be eco-conscious all of this stuff you know it takes time and it's exhausting and by the time they you know get to the point where they might have sex they're just either too tired or they're too angry um and it just doesn't quite work out. So whilst we started being like, oh, sexy, it then became, you know, quite serious, <laughs> right. quite quickly. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think that your listeners are are really onto something. Look, we have good um, OECD uh, data. So this is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development that keeps track of time spent in paid and unpaid work by sex. And so for the United Kingdom, uh, this is in minutes per day right? Men are performing 140 minutes uh, on average of unpaid work for day in the UK. And in, and women are doing um, 149 minutes per day of unpaid work. So when we look at these time use studies, and I mean, and the numbers uh, for the United States are comparable. Um, when we look at China and India, it's ridiculous, the imbalance, right? Um, but, but this is, these are, this is like almost a hundred minutes more per day, right? That women are doing unpaid labor in the home. And that adds up. So if you had, um, you know, an extra hour and 40 minutes of your day, yeah, you might have some extra time to get kind of cuddly and enjoy some foreplay and make it worth it, right? But if you're just exhausted at the end of the day, not to mention if you're in an economically precarious job, you know, where uh, or your partner is precarious or you have student loans or you have, you know, um, other kinds of economic and, and psychosocial burdens that are, you know, making you stressed out. Of course, you're not going to be in the mood. I mean, I don't, again, what I find so incredibly interesting in, in my research is that in the book, I talk about the case of Poland. So in Poland, sexology was not a discipline that was only about, you know, the, the four-stage sexual response cycle. It was a very holistic discipline that looked at philosophy and theology and sociology because it understood that sexuality wasn't just about stimulation. It was about society. It was about women feeling comfortable and confident and relaxed enough to enjoy their lives. And, you know, I do think that we need to have this conversation. Like, do we... We live in these we live we live these very stressful lives, and it they it is eroding our our intimate 
our intimate contact with our partners. And I, and I would actually say beyond just sex, it, I think sometimes it erodes our friendships. It erodes our relationship with our family members because we're so time poor, you know, in, this, in, in both the United States and the United Kingdom. But really, it's the modern world. Let's talk about solutions then, because, um, you know, we obviously have the NHS here which we're really grateful for um, and which does relieve the burden and we don't have the same sort of reliance on private healthcare and therefore possibly a partner. Um, yeah. And so that probably does affect things. We do have a bit of a safety net. There is some tax-free um, benefits around childcare, but it's not brilliant. There's a few free hours of childcare, but it's once the kid turns three, so it's not brilliant either. Um, right. you talk about some solutions sort of offered up by socialism and... Um, I'll come on to sort of socialism as a thing in a minute, but just looking at these solutions, you mentioned state childcare, state cafeterias, state laundries. Um, I mean, I was fascinated by the laundries because I can, I can imagine how state childcare works, but how does a state laundry work? Well, it's, you know, it's basically like a, you know, a dry cleaner. I don't, I don't know what you call them. In, yeah, you know, a dry cleaner, yeah. Yeah, you, you know, you just basically go down and you drop off your clothes and, um and, you know, you go back and you pick them up a week later. I mean, you know, in, in, in places where they did have uh, state laundries, largely it was for things like sheets and towels and like really large items um, that are kind of tedious to wash, right? Um, and there's sort of an economy of scale. So generally speaking, people do their, you know, intimate garments at home. <laughs> um, but certainly baby clothes and if you use cloth nappies or anything, those are the kinds of things, I mean, in the United States, we have things that are called like nappy services, right? Where you um, you can use cloth nappies and then somebody will come and take them and wash them and bring you a new thing. That's sort of the same idea of a public laundry, right? And paid for, um, paid for by the state, yeah, but it's paid for by the state or it's, you know, it's paid for by your employer. I mean, which in the case of a socialist state was the state, but it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, it could be a, a neighborhood laundry. It could be a community laundry. It could be an enterprise-based laundry. But the idea is that not every single person is doing their own individual laundry in their home because that's just inefficient, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> uh, similarly, you know, I mean, it is inefficient, definitely especially for things like sheets and towels, right? Definitely the way I do it as well. <laughs> It's just, I'm yeah, sure I mean, a we way. all do it. You know, I do loads of laundry. I mean, me and my daughter, you know, and I gather everything up. I wait till there's enough and then I go downstairs and I, you know, I, it's, it's kind of a ritual thing. It takes a lot of time and, um, you know, I always think about it, like there's got to be a better way of doing it, similarly to the idea of sort of canteens or cafeterias, right? Um, in in some countries, you know, you have places there, you know, w the funny thing is, is that, you know, we have restaurants and we have, um, you know, to-go meals. You can go down to Marks and Spencer's, right, and get things to go to take home for dinner. Um, so the idea is that these would just be sort of uh, socialized, subsidized by the state, Um and so that people could have healthy, and that's the key thing, right? It's not junk food. It's healthy food uh, that, that they, women can bring home to their families or, you know, people can bring home to their families or canteens where you can go out and be social. I mean, especially in a place, uh, advanced industrialized uh, countries like the United States or Japan or even the UK, but certainly also Italy, where you have elderly populations that are very lonely having a neighborhood canteen or cafeteria is an excellent way 
um, if everybody goes there in the evenings to have meals together, uh, you know, the children get what they want and, and elderly people have company. I mean, they're, 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 it's just about changing the way we think about how we consume um, certain, you know, things in our lives, how we, how we organize our lives. And so, yeah, I do think that there are solutions, um, but they require a sort of different way of thinking about our societies and our economies. Um, and, and that's hard for people, right? If you're used to doing things the way you're doing them, it's really hard to imagine like, you know, bringing your sheets down to a communal laundry. Although we bring our clothes to dry cleaners all the time. It's so, true. you know, it's not that much of a stretch. It's, it's just not. the way that it's being organized, whether it's a private enterprise or by the state. It's true. But also there's a certain amount of shame, I think, in giving your kids food out rather than cooking it at home. It's seen probably as a bit less wholesome and probably the same with I mean yeah we do we do have laundrettes because a lot of people don't have their own facilities right. to wash um yet the idea of taking everything there leaving it picking it up a week later just seems very <laughs> extravagant and it probably isn't you know it probably isn't and that's why I think I was so taken with your idea because I was a bit like well these are probably small you know independent businesses that could do with extra business and what is stopping us from dropping all our laundry right and picking up a week later i mean if i could exactly spend my laundry exactly. time on having sex why not <laughs> yeah <laughs> right good. right wouldn't you rather be having sex than doing laundry totally. yeah 100 percent. and if the government <laughs> I, you know, is paying I, for I it even that. more these are such small, I mean, these are small things. Of course, you know, I also talk in the book about job protected paid parental leave programs. Uh, we do not have anything like that at the federal level in the United States. You know, subsidized childcare under the age of three, very high quality. We know that the most uh, developmentally important years for children are zero to four. And so we could certainly do a lot more around early childhood care to help women. Um, you know, I talk about expansion of public service, uh, public sector employment, especially if we're going to have all these kindergartens and creches. There's a way in which um, public sector employment, we also know that there's less of a gender gap between men and women. Um, but the big thing is is alleviating this gender pay gap, really, because as long as you know, employers think that women are going to have to leave the labor force when they have children. They're considered riskier employees. And so employers will pay them less because the only reason you would hire a riskier employee is if you can pay them less than a less risky employee. Um, and then when a heterosexual couple decides to have children and they can't afford good childcare or there isn't good childcare available, it makes totally rational sense for the person with the lower wage to be the one to stay home. And so that's usually the woman. And then when that woman stays home, she's sending a signal to the market that women generally tend to stay home with young children. And so that depresses women's wages. And you know, the, there's this persistence of the gender wage gap. It's a vicious cycle that cannot be rectified by the market. It requires some form of government intervention. You also, you don't shy away from, I guess, the dark side of socialism as it's stood in the past. And, you know, it's not just this sort of glossy socialism is brilliant kind of advert. No, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely not. Just absolutely in case not. any listeners were sort of worried about that. But, you know, I mean, you talk about, for example, a couple of eminent figures that you know, when they were turned on by their regime, ended up being purged, for example. And, you know, like you say, you talk about the secret police, etc. Like, you know, I, travel I, restrictions, consumer shortages. There yeah. are a lot of negative 
effects of how socialism was implemented in Eastern Europe in the 20th century. And I do not for a second want to question that. But what I do want to uh, suggest is that there were a few good things, and especially around the policies of women, uh, supporting women and supporting families and promoting sex education. I think that we could really learn from them and like pulling out these little, you know, we call it like the baby in the bathwater, right? Pulling out these good things does not mean that we have to reinstitute the gulag. It just means that we can, you know, take the good, discard the bad, and move forward into the 21st century with a better idea of the kinds of policies that might work to make all of our lives better. You know, I hate it when people you know, think I'm some kind of crazy apologist for Stalin because I'm talking about, you know, the quality of, of and the and the availability of childcare in Poland, right? It's just ridiculous. It's yeah. True. And you talk about how, you know, at its best, I guess, socialism can act as a foil to the worst excesses of capitalism. And it's the sort of interplay. It's like Twitter, I think. I do think that, you know, um, listeners in the UK should really, you know, um, thank you know, Clement Attlee for the NHS, yeah, right? Absolutely. I mean, there's this way in which you have this incredible um, social service. You know, the 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 um, NHS is an incredible uh, system that works fairly well. You know, we have a terrible healthcare system in the United States. It's the most expensive with the worst outcomes in the industrialized world, and it's really hard for us to get anywhere even close to where the UK is. Now, I know that the, I know the NHS isn't perfect. Um, my sister actually, you know, lives in London, and so I've heard all of the stories. But but at the end of the day, she loves it, right? Because it's compared to trying to deal with the US, it's 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 almost impossible. But there are other things that you can do. And I think that, you know, because you have the NHS in the UK, you have a model of how the socialization of something can actually really help, um, especially women. So yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I really, I hope, especially young women who come to the, the book, um, is that they'll, they'll learn that these problems that they have in their lives you know, have been around for a really long time. And a lot of really interesting, smart and passionate people have been thinking about solutions. And we shouldn't just discard those solutions because they're old or because they were affiliated with the left. Um, we need to actually think about the ways, as I said, to keep the good bits, get rid of the nasty bits and forge our new path forward into the 21st century. Put that on a poster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So I think she got a stat a bit wrong in, you know, from memory. Um, and that's about how men and women do unpaid labor to different degrees. And actually, I think the fact is that women do two more hours a day of unpaid labour, such as childcare, cleaning, etc. Um, I don't know how that balances with paid labour, but I suppose the point is just the same as should really be the same. It feels like work, doesn't it? I mean, I probably, four hours with the children, love it, but, you know, it's work. It's really it work, is. isn't it? It is. And I think if you sort of think about more broadly all the other bits and bobs, which is the sort of unseen stuff, so checking their bags to make sure they've got all the stuff they need for their day, you know, making little pet lunches, all of that stuff. I think it, it's definitely, that's the thing that takes up the time and the mental energy. Like I, you know, that whole idea of why haven't you written a brilliant novel? Why, you know, why does Martin Amis write so many good books? Well, he's not making a bloody pet lunch, is he, for his children? And he's probably not worrying about World Book Day and what outfit, whether he's going to do Harry Potter or buy something on Amazon. So I want to ask you, Anarchy, if you didn't have to do that average of two hours extra of unpaid work, what would you do in that time? And would any of it be sexy stuff? Mm, yeah, hmm. it might be. I think the problem is I would probably dedicate more time to writing if I could do anything at all at the moment. So it'd be writing. Um, but yeah, that whole mythical idea of self-care, like at the moment, my idea of self-care is sort of brushing my hair and apply, applying makeup and then I keep looking at Instagram and seeing people going on about how I need to have some more self-care um so for me yeah I mean what about you what would you do with that additional time if I've got free mental space it is to kind of devote to like work or I don't know just stuff that needs doing and I think if I did have two extra hours a day I would probably sleep more, which would make me feel sexier. I probably would do more exercise, which would make me feel sexier. I think I would probably zone out a bit more, whether like reading or telly or music or whatever. Um, and then I think that would free up some time in my head and in my body to do the sex thing. But Well, maybe that's a say, good bit of homework. You know, we always like to set a bit of homework. Oh, we love a bit of homework. So can we maybe see if we can get some of our listeners to see if they can free up two hours is a bit too much isn't it but do you think like half an hour just, half an hour yeah, of time each work. day where <laughs> you don't have to do anything and you could in theory give it over to self-care stroke self-pleasure stroke sex stroke stroking stroke stroking or even just thinking about sex because that's the other danger is unfortunately I think at the moment, I probably feel the least erotic that I ever have in my entire life, apart really? from in childhood. Um, and so <laughs> I, it just it, it is so off the scale in terms of, you know, not thinking about it, not worrying about it, 
justnotonmyagenda.com, which is ironic for somebody who does a sexy podcast. Sure is. Well, that's why we've done our sexy podcast, is to make ourselves, like, confront these issues and talk about it. I'm sure all our listeners will relate to us when we say we are too busy to sometimes think about sex. But thinking about sex is quite fun. I think that's a good idea. And do you know what we should do if we were being really gimmicky? We'd put like half an hour of empty time on the end of our podcast and then have a little alarm to go at the end. But we're not going to do that. So uh, it's up to you, listeners. Give yourself half an hour of empty time lying on your bed or having a bath, hanging out, having a bath is quite sexy. Yeah. And just think sex thoughts. Listen to um, some sexy music or read a sexy book. Well, should we put some suggestions in the show notes? Yeah, that's a good idea. For some reason, I'm that. getting that song that goes, there ain't nothing wrong to having a bit of bump and grind. But I don't think that's the lyrics. But I'm suddenly getting a lot of that kind of old R&B style. So sexy. I'm seeing yeah, sort of leather trousers. See, my erotic sort of thoughts are coming back again. There we go. Slowly, you slowly. Give a little push. Enjoy your sexy thoughts, listeners. Hanneke, what, what are you reading at the moment? Um, oh, it's interesting that you've asked me that, Cherry. I was hoping you would, actually. Um, I'm reading this really good book by the Hotbed Collective. It's called More Orgasms, Please. I've heard that's really bloody brilliant. It's really brilliant. I mean, it's not in the Sunday Times bestseller list yet, but I've heard, and I did actually go to a tarot reader, it will be in the Sunday Times bestseller list. I feel it deep down in my loins that it will be. Um, yeah. what, what can you expect for a book that sounds as good as that? Well, it's got a whole load of tips and advice on how to improve your sex life, how to have more orgasms, how to put bad sex behind you. Um, It's got a lot of funny jokes in it. um, And it's coming out in paperback in very soon, in April, I think. Do you know what? I think I actually have read that book, coincidentally, just off the cuff. It's brilliant and funny and everyone should buy it. Um, Yeah, and a few people, I think Michelle Obama, in fact, said that it was the best book she'd ever read in her entire life. I I might not be right on that. That might just be a rumour, just for legal reasons, I have to say that. Thanks for listening to The Hotbed. Um, We really like to hear your points of view, but only if they're positive. So please like, review and subscribe. Um, Share it as much as you like. So please tell your friends about us and uh, and hopefully we will move up the iTunes charts and take over the world. Thank you. (laughs) Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 